Tonight on Arena, Cathy Belton, Marty Ray and Jane Brennan on performing the work of Tom Murphy and Minister Catherine Martin on the Basic Income for the Arts scheme. The Basic Income for the Arts pilot scheme has been going for just over a year now and today Catherine Martin, Minister for Culture and the Arts, has published the first research findings on the project. Since October of last year, 2,000 artists decided through a lottery have received a weekly wage intending to free them up to focus on their arts practice. Minister Martin joins us now from our Doyle studio. Maybe you just remind us, Minister, if you would, of the practicalities of the, the pilot scheme, how it was that you chose the 2,000 people, how much they got and, and others involved in the scheme? Sure. I suppose the, the, the idea, Sean, for the, the basic income for the arts, it came from the Arts and Culture Task Force, which I, I established in 2020 in response to, to the devastation wreaked by, by COVID-19 on, on, on our arts sector. And it was the number one recommendation from from that task force and I have to say as as someone I, I come from that background myself um, someone who's been steeped in the, the music my, uh, as someone who studied music my dad was an artist my brother's a poet you know I, and my husband indeed is, a, is an artist too I have to say the recommendation I saw it, it excited me um, because I, I saw a real opportunity here to make a strong statement at home and abroad about the value that, that we as a nation place on artistic practice, you know, both from, for its intrinsic value and, and in terms of our personal and collective well-being, which, which we all really felt um, d- during COVID when, when, when we lost access to it, but, but also too in terms of the importance to our identity and cultural distinctiveness. Um, so, so I worked with with my officials and coalition colleagues just to 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 get this uh, pilot uh, secured. And last year we announced it for for two thousand artists and creative uh, arts workers, and uh, they get three hundred and twenty five euros per per week for it's a three year pilot. But there's also um, a control group um, of of one thousand. Uh, who you know, so that we can compare uh, how I suppose the well-being, the creative output, um, and you know of of the two two groups. And it was done by randomised selection. There was mm. actually over nine thousand people applied. Eight thousand people were eligible, and um, those two thousand um, get the three hundred and twenty-five euros per per week. And um, I guess this this what we have today is the the research element of it and yeah. i would actually maintain that the the research element is it may be even more important than the actual payment itself. That's for um, sure, but I'm sure there'll be lots of artists thinking, yes, we want the research to keep going, but we need to get this payment sorted and we need to get it sorted quickly. And to be fair to you, the research findings today were were very positive in terms of so many aspects of the artists who, who were partaking in this scheme. Yes, uh, just to say that the reason I think the research element is is important, Sean, is um, I'm hoping that, and I I I I suspect that the evidence will mean when we mm. get to the end of the three years that there'll be no rowing back in this, and I would rather point to the need to expand it to to all artists and creative arts workers. So, what we have published today are are three reports, um, two reports the the demographics of of the art sector and a second called arts work perspectives, um, and. A 
suppose we've ne- we never really had any really good mm. data or evidence or where our artists were or what their conditions um, were. And this illustrates the conditions for our artists before the introduction of, of the basic income. So it's like the, the baseline. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, it, some of it does not make for, for easy reading. I think all of us understood that conditions were, were difficult for artists, but now we really have stronger evidence that, that, that this is the case. And as I said, from I've always been of, of the view that this this income payment, basic income was needed um, but it, because it gave that opportunity of collecting better data on the sector. Um, and also the paper makes for interesting reading in relation to, to where our artists are, are located. Mm. Um, the, the third report... Uh, is we're publishing today is the first of the impact assessments and we'll be doing these every six months of the three years and it shows the the, the findings of the changes the, the the recipients have experienced within the first six months of receiving the payment and, and I'm pleased to say that the the initial indications are positive for those in receipt and, and already we're seeing a clear divergence in conditions between the control group and those in receipt of payment. We're seeing improvements in wellbeing, we're seeing improvements in time spent in artistic practice on the, you know, on the yeah. financial investment the artist can make in their artistic practice and on and, and the basic ability to make end ends meet. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of positivity in there and I know you also acknowledged today those who are taking part that almost 1,000 people who are part of the control group who get 650 euro for the entire year but they, they give very strong uh, feedback to you on the difficulties that they are, are experiencing and I'm sure they are quite representative of the majority of, of artists and while I, I accept totally those positive uh, aspects that you that you put forward there I was very struck that in the midst of all of that uh, over 50% of artists still feel that their career is not sustainable. There were you, the the woman who studied piano. It's not a bad career change to be a minister for the arts in the meantime, to have done that in the meantime, or that studied music. But there you are, perhaps, I don't know if that was part of your reasoning for moving in other directions, but people just feel they cannot sustain an arts career across the long term. Yes, almost three quarters of respondents um, felt that they feel the pressure to seek employment outside of the artistic or creative sectors. Um, you know, and that that you know that that's that's what I'm saying. It's it's hard reading. Mm. We we should be doing everything we can to 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 help our creatives. You know, if you have that creative. Um, in you, you know, if you're a singer, a performer, a composer, a writer, you know, a, a circus performer, you need to do it. Uh, mm. It's not something you can you can bury. It's it's something that need, you need to do for your own well-being and and of course for for all of society. And that's why this pilot. I believe, has the potential to change the landscape of the arts. And we'll see, will trends emerge on on, on this, you know, and do they have more time to, to spend on, on, on their actual um, creative output? And that, in turn, will help us make progress towards a more evidence-based approach to funding for the arts, uh, to tell the real story, uh, you know, about the, the, the sector. Um, and and we, we are seeing, you know, that already... The basic income recipients spend one and a half hours more on on research and experimentation, one hour more on management and administration per week than those who aren't on it. One hour more presenting yeah. to audiences, and um, and indeed they're, they're also perform- they're also uh, making work for other artists. So other artists are gaining somewhat from this as well. But where are we with the scheme? Do we have to wait the three years to get all of that research? 
can we not? I mean, it's such a positive news story in that respect. Can we not move forward, even to start to get more people in to get their feedback uh, on how they experience this potential basic income for artists? I I think what's really important for me is that we have gold standard, you know, rock solid research underpinning the programme. So I, I, I... I don't think it'd be credible if we started changing it one mm. year in. So, um, and I think the artists uh, accept that. And I, I, I haven't had, a, a, you know, the, a massive call out to to change or expand within yeah. this program because I, it's the three years research and this monitoring every six months and the the really you, you want know, you want good hard data. That's coming out. And then I think that will help us understand. You know, for for example, um, on the. The dem- demographics as well is, is interesting. You know, Leitrim has 72% more artists and creative art workers than yeah. would be expected for its population. So should the local authorities there be given more funding? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's there's a whole lot of the space yeah, and strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, the, you'd have to really dig into those statistics as well because there is, uh, 65% is it of the general population own their own home, 35% of the arts population own their own home. They may have to do with house prices and availability in Dublin, etc. But let, let's move on, if we could, uh, on the topic of artistic incomes in particular. Media is part of your portfolio as well. RTE, an institution that obviously has supported Ireland's various creative industries for decades. What concerns have you about the impact of the cutbacks that will happen in RTE on the broader artistic community in, in the country? I mean, some of the stuff we've been hearing, Fair City gone from four to three broadcasts episodes, transmission of the Young Offenders deferred to 2025, a lot happening that will actually cut back on the amount of work available for artists. I suppose, firstly to say, uh, I think it's important to recognise the important support that RTE does provide to the the arts in Ireland, not not least through um, this programme itself. Um, I, I, I would point out as Minister I have no role in, in the day-to-day operations of, of RTE and, and that is how it should be mm. um, but public service broadcasters such as RTE need to need to be independent in, in their decision making especially with operational matters but I, I, I do acknowledge that this is absolutely a, a time of, of change and, and, and staff in RTE obviously are concerned about what the, the proposed changes may mean for them and, and this is absolutely understandable mm. um, I, I know that RTE has signalled it intends to outsource the production of higher proportion of of content to the independent sector in the future. But this is actually building on on existing arrangements where where RTE has established a, a track record in working with the independent sector to bring high quality TV drama to to our screens and listeners, um, Sean may or may not be aware, but RTE are are actually obliged by law. Yeah. To provide a minimum level of spend on independent productions, and in, in 2023, that you know comes to about 43 million euros, and and they are committing to increasing that spend by 50 percent um, over the lifetime of of this strategy. And I suppose increasing production activity in RT bases as Cork, Limerick, and and Galway, I, I suppose there would be potential yeah. positive impact there, uh, there on well. the regional creative sector. If we were to look at the broader sector. Um, I, I would point to the increased funding for Screen Ireland that's now at record levels and TG Cahir, um, uh, as well with the and, and there's the, inca- the increase in the cap for section 481 um, oh, there, and then there I would point back again to, to the basic income because yeah. there's potential here too we've screenwriters we've composers we've filmmakers there's potential for set designers costume designers stage designers So, but, but none of that
that will be in, none of that will happen within the RTE um, money if they have less and less money and you must accept that part of this is down to if not all of it is down to the absence of a functioning funding model you've spoken that you want to be the minister to get that sorted are we any closer to getting it sorted? Well, I am, I am absolutely de- determined uh, on on that because um, I I think it's been a failure by consecutive governments not to 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 reach a decision on that to agree a decision on that. So I'm waiting for there are two expert advisory committees that the government have set up on on foot of the controversy during the summer. They are due to report in in February. Now, whilst I said. Um, in, in the summer that the decision was paused. Uh, the discussions um, at senior cabinet level have, have not paused um, and I would like to move as quickly as possible after receiving those expert advisory committee reports which when will have recommendations. Be? When do you think but that's that will be? I, I'd, I'd like to move in a decision in the first quarter and, and the reason why I want to move quickly is uh, in the lifetime of this government it can't go beyond spring of 2025 and I believe whatever the funding model is will require legislative change. So we need to have time to pass legislation through both houses and that's where you know I would appeal to to all members yeah. of the house government and indeed opposition to to help the fast passage of whatever that decision all right. is well, that, and, that covers and it's that that's absolutely might, essential that it's done that might happen before the next election to to bring back to that good news story and the basic arts income what about persuading and being sure that successive governments have the acknowledged passion that you displayed today during the announcement, acknowledged by many artists and acknowledged by many organisations? How can you ensure that that is held through successive governments? Through through the research, I, I keep pointing pointing uh, back to that, Sean, and that's why it was it was key in how we designed this for me that the research at the end of the three years, um, it is my hope, it'll be absolutely undeniable that the evidence will be there's no rowing back in this, but rather a, an expansion. Um, I've, I've felt, as I said, I, I come from that world of the arts. I'm surrounded by it, my family and, and my friends. And long before I got involved in, in, in politics, um, I, you know, I, I, I was one of those people who said, you know, we talk about our artists a lot and we, we say we value them, but I, I'm not sure if I see that value. So this is the signal that we do value our artists as we should, um, because we're, you know, at every key occasion, um, state occasion, um, at every key function in a community, what do we need for celebration? We need yeah. our artists. Well, um, what do we look for when we're in periods of grief? We turn to our artists. Um, so we. this is about, you know, I suppose really demonstrating that value. It's a signal to our artistic uh, sector that we do value them and that's why the research I'm really hoping and I believe it will will say no rowing back. It's undeniable this needs to be expanded at the end of the three years. Minister Catherine Martin Now anyone who has studied plays for the state exams will know that what you get in book form is a drama divided into acts and scenes and then you'll get the stage directions which will set the scene for you and there's the dialogue of the actors to bring the drama to life. Once written, what is the role of the playwright 
and how free are actors then to interpret the written work? Usually that's up to the director to be the conduit for the wishes of the playwright, but if a theatre company is lucky enough, they may well have the playwright in the rehearsal room with them to give them guidance. One of the most dynamic curators of his own work in the rehearsal process was the late playwright Tom Murphy, author of Conversations on a Homecoming, Whistle in the Dark, the Sanctuary Lamp and many, many more classics of Irish theatre. The Lear Academy and the Abbey Theatre have come together to run a series of masterclasses around the subject of text and interpretation and the relationship of the playwright to the actor. Three of the participants are actors Jane Brennan, who was also the wife of Tom Murphy, Marty Ray and Cathy Belton, all of whom have acted in the work of Tom and Jane. I'll, I'll start with you. Um, this whole idea of, you know, the, the masterclasses where it's actors talking to actors about about acting and, and passing on to a, a younger generation, not just the tricks of the trade, but kind of opening up stuff maybe that is no longer available to them. Where did, where did the idea start? The idea actually started with Frank McCusker, the actor Frank McCusker, who when Tom died, he was working with a whole lot of young actors in, um, in a play in the Abbey. And he... He said they were all very aware of Tom as a sort of towering figure in Irish mm. theatre, but they weren't, they hadn't had any experience of working on his plays. I think probably because, well, a lot of the characters in the plays are a bit older and also they're quite psychologically complex and perhaps as a very young person, maybe it's felt they wouldn't have the life experience, let alone the acting experience, to take on the, the, the heavier roles. So... Frank thought it would be a good idea to, because we've learned so much from Tom in the rehearsal room, mm. to um, to pass on our knowledge to, to, to a younger generation because at the time it wasn't really happening. There weren't that many productions of of plays with older actors mixing with younger actors. And, and big casts. And big casts. Yeah. And we've all had that experience and we felt it would be a lovely way to... And Frank br- brought us the idea and he... Uh, I thought it was a beautiful mm. idea to to commemorate Tom in this way. And so we brought the idea to Lachlan Deegan in the Lear and he um, opened the doors and said facilitated the idea and we got Una Carmody on as producer and the Arts Council gave us the money. So um, here went. we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean... I think Tom Murphy would just love this idea and he'd so, love yeah. that kind of interaction between older actors and, and younger actors. Yes. But putting aside, um, obviously, your, your own relationship with Tom, your personal relationship with Tom, let's go back to a, a moment before you were a couple, in fact, and you were a young, uh, a relatively young actor playing a part in, was, it was Conversations, Conversations, wasn't it? Yeah, conversations yeah, or Homecoming. Yeah. Is she Marie or Marie? Anne. Anne. Oh, sorry, Anne. Well, she's, neither, <laughs> she's neither Marie nor Marie. Neither. <laughs> she's Anne. Yes. Anne. <laughs> I'm glad I got that one sorted. Yes. Uh, not the biggest part in the world you thought going into this. How big it? But how big a shadow or how big a figure was even thinking Tom Murphy's going to be in the room as I'm doing this small oh, yeah. but important I, role? I mean, Tom had just written the Geely concert that had been the previous yeah. <laughs> hit, yeah. and um, and a huge hit, and a huge that. hit, and um, so I was in the room with the man who'd written the Geely concert, and I didn't know him very well, hmm. and I of course was. In my, it is a very, it's a very small part in the play, but actually, she's quite a, she's quite a, has an effect. She's kind mm. of a, a symbolic character, mm. and so it's quite important. But um, so, of course, in my nervousness, I go cantering through every comma, <laughs> dot dot dot, you know, yeah. colon, semicolon, just went cantering through the whole thing, and uh, he stopped me and said, and I think we've all had this experience. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you'll 
find there are three dots in the middle of that sentence and I'd just like you to observe them, please. And very politely and very nice, but you'd kind of, you know, yeah. you, 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 you then realised actually when you when you observe the punctuation that they are there for that it's there for a reason and it is there to help rather than hinder. Yeah, so, and I, I suppose it's important to point out that the the, the punctuation, the sentence markings, the da- whether it's a dash, whether it's a comma, you know, all of that is hugely important in terms of the text that's there in front of you on the page when it comes to Tom's writing in particular. Absolutely, yeah. That that, that 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 language as music, I suppose, is, yes, is one way is. that you describe. You saw that production, yeah, was it, Cathy Belton? I did, and it's one of the reasons why I, I joined this crazy, beautiful business. It's all Jane Brennan's fault. It's all Jane Brennan's fault. <laughs> and Tom she was Tom <laughs> She was extraordinary. She was the light, I remember, in 1985. And I had seen a few plays, but that was the first play. It was a road to Damascus moment. It hit me in the solar plexus. I was transported into that pub and tomb. And I think that it was, it was funny, it was heartbreaking, it was angry, it was... It it was pure entertainment as well. Mm. And I came out and I had forgotten where I was. It actually grabbed me around the throat. And I remember looking at all these amazing actors on stage and um, like Sean McGinley and Marie Mullen and, and Jane um, and uh, wanting to, to attempt to be in this to do that I think as well it was the sound it was the first mm. play I'd seen that I recognised the sound being from the west of Ireland I, Yeah because you're, you're a Galway kind of, yeah. woman yourself and obviously this is a Galway story although it's a bigger than a it's, Galway story so, as well isn't yeah, it Yeah but I recognised those characters I knew those characters I knew that sound and so it was it really did hit me in, in my heart and soul I, I will never forget it as long as I live I, I actually woke up um, out of a dream. I couldn't believe it. Tom says when he writes, you know, he starts at seven in the morning and the joy and the happiness of seeing it's ten past two in the afternoon. Yeah. I almost felt like that, that I come out and went, oh, my Lord. I, it's the first thing that really in my life, I was 15, that transported me somewhere. And I fell in love with Tom Murphy and I fell in love with this beautiful thing that we do, which is... Playing other people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marty Ray, you had studied and trained in Rada, mm. Marty. What did did Tom Murphy's plays reckon in any or, or figure in any way in that training? Yeah, it did because we would have had a an Irish <coughs> term mm. um, with a guy called Lloyd Trot. He would have been uh, one of the tutors there, and he would have done a specifically Irish based piece or part of the term. Mm. Tom would have featured in that and Brian Freed would have featured in that, obviously. And, but everyone, I mean, right back even to Sheridan and all that. Just how Irish theatre was having its effect on, on English theatre over the years. And to what extent was this aspect that I, th- I know that all three of you will, will tell me a little bit more about this aspect of the, la- the language and the sound mm. of the language. How much was that explored in, in what you were doing in, during that course? Well, hugely, because our training at Rada would have started always and be founded on Shakespeare, which is all rhythm. Yeah. And finding character and sense through the rhythm of the language in the first place. And t- Tom is doing exactly that, I think. Yeah. I think, I think all the best. Yeah playwrights mm. are doing that anyway because I think that's what makes that type of writing different from say writing a novel is that a script a play is a is a working tool as much as anything else for people to work from and to build things from so it's language as raw material really and when Tom gives you it he really is giving you bricks and mortar and it's just getting into the 
getting yourself familiar with his sets of rules mm. and, you know, grammar and punctuation become the little nuts and bolts yeah. of that, of how you build it up. And did you go, so was it practically straight from Rada then to, to Druid to play in, in Morpheus? No. It wasn't straight, it was. I no. thought it was, practic- it was almost immediate. No. no, I graduated in uh, 2002, so long ago now. And I didn't, I wasn't in a professional production of Murphy until I worked for Druid in 2011 or All 12. Right, so it was a, a, bit, a bit further on mm-hmm. from that. But that Druid-Murphy season was extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and exhausting, but... <laughs> well, ex- explain how, how many of the players were done at that Three. time. Three of the players, yeah. At one point, we were going to be doing four, and then Gary Hines remembered there's only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> but uh, so we did um, Conversations and Whistle in the Dark and Famine, and there was a kind of core group of us, five of us, who were in all three. And it was... Uh, I think we had only... Nine weeks rehearsal for the three of them. Yeah, so that's kind of three weeks, three weeks per play, which mm. is which is a, a very short period of time. But yeah. being in all three of them in that fashion, did that open them up? Maybe and oh yeah, get you away from uh, I suppose the kind of the methody feeling. Not that the, that that's a lot. That's there a lot. You can yeah. plays, but it maybe get you away from this idea of oh my character, my character's motivations. Just get stuck into the language here. Get stuck into the world. Well, absolutely, it made you. It made you technically strong. Or it required you to be technically mm. strong, whether we were or not is another thing. But I think we were. And but you had you, it required you to be technically strong and to listen to him when he was there um, and to listen to each other uh, an awful lot. We used to run conversations almost as uh, God, we used to we, we used to do it like uh, table tennis upstairs. Any kind of break we had if we were because famine is such a massive play. It ate up an awful lot of the time. And conversation being the smaller piece compared to the other two, if you like, um, we needed to keep grabbing time for it, and we'd, mm. we'd all be up and 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 when you, you you played Michael in conversations, and yeah. he was he was in the room f- for that period of time. Mm. How intimidating was that? Oh, yeah, really frightening. <laughs> 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 yes. There's no other way about it. <laughs> there is no shortcut around that. Oh, no. um, Cathy Belton, um, for you, uh, when was that first experience of playing Murphy and of having Tom Murphy in the rehearsal room? I was so lucky. My first Abbey stage appearance was in a Crucial Week in the Life of a Grocer Assistant with um, Marie Mullen and Sean McGinley and I played Mona and I actually thought I'd lose my life the first day with Tom Murphy there mm. the conductor telling you how to sing this and learning <laughs> and I, I just loved every second of it and then I did The House with Tom who we was so lucky to play Marie that Jane had played That's the Maria had in the yeah. head Yeah and <laughs> it's just a beautiful play the other thing I think Tom was he wrote great female parts mm. they were mm. always the light and the strength in these parts that we never talk about but I do remember the first line the first read through and you're going I've done my dots as the great Andrew Bennett used to call him Murphy dot Tom <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant <laughs> because you'd learn your kind of three dots three dots comma but once mm. like we joke about it but when you learn that rhythm when you learn to sing like Geely like Murphy taught you it was glorious to play but I do remember the first line one of the first lines Marie has is lovely day and Tom went ah Cappy I'll stop you I'm Jesus there's only a full stop what have I done wrong and he said the eyes too you have too generous of eyes and I went 
I'll have to, they'll have to cast somebody else. I can't change my eyes. But the note was Marie was a very shy, underconfident, you know, eldest. So the note was a piece of gold. Yeah. She never looked people directly in the eyes. So I got it. The, your eyes are too generous. Mm. It was a, a genius of a note yeah. on the first day. It was brilliant. But it was, you know, going, I think I'm going to faint here. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I suppose the, the thing is, obviously, Tom can't be in the rehearsal room. And, and that's what these workshops are are yeah. now about, Jane. It yes. is about the three of you and other actors who have done this in the past. It's about bringing an actor-to-actor type of uh, yes. mentoring going on here without the intimidation, perhaps, <laughs> of, the, of the playwright being able to... But kind of almost in a master-pupil type of way, passing on yes, it's, that it's material. Really, it's really just um, it's sharing what, we, what we've learned from him and... Hopefully, you know, in a funny kind of way, mentoring is a little bit too mm. formal a word. It's 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 here's a conversation that we're having with these yeah. younger actors. It's it's more it's more um, and and sort of introducing them to him and because when you knew him as a person, it also informed your your understanding of the plays as well. And so to sort of give them an insight into him and his personality because he so much of him is in the plays um, and uh, to. Um, and and I've found that because we've done it twice before that in both on both occasions that I've learned probably more from them uh, as much as yeah. they've learned anything from 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 us. So um, it's a it's a lovely kind of two way conversation. Uh, Jane mentioning there, uh, Marty, about this idea that so much of, there's so much of Tom in the plays, and you, I suppose any playwright would probably argue all of the characters are me. There isn't yeah. there isn't yeah. one character that's me. <laughs> but they, it, I'm thinking particularly of the brothers in in conversations of a home uh, on a homecoming. Um, it, it, isn't it Tom and uh, is Michael and Tom are the two brothers in there? conversations? Yeah, yeah, they're two best friends. They're best friends, but they're like brothers. Call them the twins. Yes. Twins. He says the yeah. two of them together would make up one, one decent man. Yeah. yeah, and just explain those two people and, and and how much you think of Tom Murphy is in there, if you like. I think Tom and Michael in that play are re- that is like a motif that's repeated over and over and over again in the plays. That there's two characters that are like. Uh, the two sides of the same coin. And it's almost like one can't exist without the other. And often the the play is about them trying to come together mm-hmm. to find a way through life or through their situation. And if they could only come together, maybe there would be harmony. And I think that's, it's a kind of a technique that Murphy is using as a playwright to put himself, the human being under a microscope because they, they, they're, all, they're often at war with each other but they need each other yeah, to they, make sense. It kind of makes sense yeah. when, when you see the two of them together. And you get it an awful lot through the plays. And then you think of the family uh, then in A Whistle in the Dark. The, yeah. the one, you played Michael in there as well. Who's, did, yeah. he's, who's the guy, I suppose, another Michael, he's, he's trying to bring the whole family together and I guess yeah. if you could put all of that, that family some of them are quite scary, but them. if you could get yeah. them into one into one person, quite a quite a chap. Oh no, you don't want <laughs> you don't want the carnies to make one person. No, I think Michael and Harry are, are the, like yeah, the two of them. Yeah. They're the, the Michael is the is the guy who's come over and yeah. to England to, to and he's or the, the younger fella's coming over to England, isn't he? Mm. And and Michael really wants to 
get him and, and stop him from going down the violent route of the rest of the family. He wants to do it with all the brothers. And that was the thing that Tom kept reminding me in rehearsals. He kept saying, people always talk about this play about uh, the brothers descending on Michael and that Michael and his wife can't get rid of them. And he said, that's not the case. Michael has brought them. He invited yeah. them over. He says, and that's what you must remember. That That's Michael's, it's almost like an addiction. Mm. Uh, this kind of fatal flaw that he cannot abandon his family at the same time he must escape them and and yet you were saying Cathy about um, the, the writing for, for women because uh, the, the male characters are extraordinary creations yeah. every single one of them um, <laughs> it's similar in, in terms of the characters that you, that you have played yeah, certainly. I played Betty in the 2001 Who's the, the, the wife, isn't the wife, she? Michael, Michael. Michael's wife. And again, placing the woman that's going to be the bridge, like the hope, you know, that although she fails, there is such power in this woman who will fight until the end and is the woman or the person that play who tells Michael that the only way to beat these is to fight. You'll mm-hmm. have to fight. She's the truth, isn't yeah, she, really? Yeah, she really mm-hmm. is, yeah. yeah. And it was, it, it, was, it was a joy to play a part like that that is so, you know so quietly powerful um, and then combusts and, and tells the truth to Michael. And the house then, is the house is the play, is the house the play that you're concentrating on in this set of workshops? We're, we're con- well, we've got a whole lot of mm. um, plays that we're concentrating on. So the, the, uh, the this strand, uh, we're, we're also in, we have 12 young actors working with six mentors on Bolygongora, Whistle in the Dark, The House, Sanctuary Lamp and What's the other one? Come uh, the whole kit and caboodle, more or less. Yes. <laughs> There's and a sixth one in there. We have, we have six young directors working on the sort of lesser known plays. Mm. So there'll be, we'll be really murphyed out by the end of the week, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what, what for you, Cathy, is the, is the, I suppose in some ways there's the advantage of it being actor to actor. You don't have the potential, I'm calling it a distraction. We all know that directors were invented when an actor said, go down the back and tell me when I'm standing in the middle of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have the, the director in the way. Uh, you don't have the writer telling you how many full stops or dots are there. So what is the benefit or have I just given you what the benefit is of actor to actor? Uh, I, th- I think it's a great question why this is. This There is no end product to this. Mm, this yeah. is just, we're all going to be in the room or try and give voice to Tom in the room and and pass on what we have learned from him with not having to put a production in place yeah. at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's a quite relaxed atmosphere. And I think as well is, is to pass on the song. I really do believe it is music, the way Murphy writes. And, you know, to pass that on to every actor, it will unlock things for the rest of their careers, I think. I really do. Yeah, and, and finally, Jane, obviously the connection with Tom is huge and hugely important for you, both professionally and personally. This is this is something that is open to other playwrights, for this to be done for other sure. playwrights yeah. as well. It's kind of yeah. crying out to be done. I mean, I think it should be done with other playwrights. Mm. I think there's no reason why it shouldn't. I mean, I can't, I don't have the intimate knowledge mm. that I have of Tom um, to do it myself, but I'm sure there's somebody, uh, you know, should take on you know, uh, Freel or Kilroy or McGuinness or whoever, and and and, and yeah, because I mean, I, I know we may be looking mm. with rose tinted spectacles, mm. but there was a period in the eighties mm. and nineties yeah. in Irish theatre when those giant playwrights—not yeah. just those men, but yeah. Marina Carr and others—in in the yeah. midst of all of that as well, they were Absolutely. giants of yeah. the stage, and yes. and you play was something you got very excited about. Yes, yes, we were very lucky to have. 
you know, that a, period. An endless stream of, of <laughs> wonderful opening nights. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, thanks to all three of you for coming in, Marty Ray, Cathy Benton, and Jane Brennan, to talk to us about those uh, upcoming workshops and the lucky twelve young actors who will be part of it all. I think I need. To, uh, no, I did give the hint that the the, the person who plays um, uh, Bell. Oh, no, I don't need to give a further hint. The entries are flying in. People want to get to Cork. All right, we'll be back with more after these. Now, a bit of news in. It's just been announced. Kneecap. You may remember uh, that Mohara from Kneecap was on with us last week. Kneecap, uh, uh, the feature film that we spoke briefly about on the night, but Mohara has been very circumspect. He didn't want to give anything away. It will have its premiere on the first night of the prestigious Sundance Film Festival in Utah next month. Maybe he knew that and maybe he was afraid to tell me. The film stars uh, the three members of Kneecap along with Michael Fassbender and Simone Kirby. Really looking forward to seeing that. Ah, Have a listen to this. You can dance Every dance with the guy Who gives you the eye Let him hold you tight You can smile Every smile for the man Who held your hand Neath the pale light But don't forget Who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So darling Save the last dance for me Well, you got two minutes and 25 seconds of magic. Save the last dance for me, sung there by the 1950s R&B band and supergroup, The Drifters. Most fans of The Drifters will associate the band with the singer Benny King with hits like There Goes My Baby and the single you just heard, Save the Last Dance for Me. But the story of The Drifters is far more complex than that. 60 musicians have been members of the band in over six decades of its existence. There have been major highs and, yes, of course, major lows during that period but right from the early days the drifters uh, of the drifters behind it all was the force of energy that was Faye Threadwell Faye is the subject of The Drifters Girl a musical based on the story and the music of the band it's coming to the Borgosh Energy Theatre in January Kellyanne Byrne has been to see it during its English run and she's with me in studio uh, this evening to tell us a, a bit more about it but I, I, I mentioned him Benny King there like yeah. 60 members is a huge number yeah. before Benny King there were, there were lots of others mm-hmm. there what was the first version of The Drifters? So there's kind of three periods. Clyde McFadder was the original singer in mm. 1953. Um, he was under the management of George Treadwell, the original manager. And he was drafted and then he went off and did his own thing. And then basically they got Benny King in um, and that was the kind of golden period mm. of The Drifters. Um, but that he decided to leave and go off and do his own thing. And then there was Johnny Moore. So there's three kind of periods. Right. Clyde okay. McFadder, Benny King and Johnny Moore. So 1953 was the, was the founding year. Yes. Five years later, there was, was the first big bust up, was it? What was yeah, that about? What yeah. was the row about? So in 1958, they were performing in the Apollo Theatre and um, there was a massive bust up, I think, on stage and also off. Something, I think, probably to do with um, not getting paid enough, but also there was kind of drink involved and George Treadwell 
decided to fire them all. So he he was managing the band. He at was that managing time. the band at the time. Now, are yeah. you are, are you seeing this story? Is this the story that's been told to you or was told to you at the musical when you saw it in England? Yeah, I mean it's a very complex story, the history, but it, the the musical itself centres around Faye Treadwell, who was the manager of the group. Right. So you've mentioned George Treadwell there. Mm-hmm. When does Faye come in? Come into the story? She's not his sister. No. <laughs> he meets her in 1957 at a Ray Charles concert and kind of instantly falls in love with her. And they get married, but he tragically passed away in 1967 of a heart mm. attack. And she took over the group herself. She bought out the other um, shareholders and took over herself. And she managed the group until 2011. But she was a trailblazer. She was the first African-American woman to manage a band. And the musical really touches on the kind of sexism and racism that she experienced throughout the whole period, actually. I would have thought a a woman managing a band at that time was highly unusual. What sort of obstacles did did she face and meet and overcome? We really see that in the musical. I mean, there's lots of kind of meetings where men are trying to slap her ass, you know, they, they ask her, she's the secretary, she's kind of dismissed a lot. When they when she moved the band to England in the 1970s, um, it was during the No Blacks, No Irish, No Dogs period. Mm. And so there's a particular scene, I think, where they go to a hotel and they're sort of asked for money up front and that kind of thing. So the, the play really does touch on, the musical touches on that too. And do we get into her story very quickly? Is that the story that we're being told across the the show? Yeah, yeah, more or less from the start. um, We get into her story. But I do also think that the real star of the show is that is it's the, the, the dancing and the singing. The four drifters are incredible. I uh, mean, and do we just get four drifters? Because after all, I did say sixty band. Yeah. So the actors play six role roles each. Which, you know, could have been a disaster, but it works perfectly well. So they're playing band members at different points in yeah. the bands, yeah. uh, the, the, the different versions of the Drifters. Exactly. And then one's playing Benny King. Uh, the other, as we mentioned, is playing um, Johnny Moore. But yeah, they play six roles each and they never drop their energy once. I think they're off stage for like a few seconds each. And it has to be said that uh, Carly Marseille's Dyer, Dyer as Faye Treadwell. She is, plays Faye. She's the constant then, I'm yeah. guessing, throughout the whole thing, is yeah, she? Yeah, she is spectacular. Um, one particular rendition of Stand By Me, I'll never forget, that you could hear a pin drop in the theatre. She's really, really good. So she's she's singing here as well. Was, yeah. was Was the real Faye a singer as well as a manager? No. No, the real Faye wasn't. The real Faye was a manager. But yeah, she's singing. Um, her acting is outstanding. All of the acting, singing and choreography is slick. The, the, you, you mentioned about the that, that it was she was married to George. So mm-hmm. do we see that relationship coming to fruition? Yeah. And I presume it's it's a, a, a drastic and tra- tragic moment when he dies. He died quite suddenly in 1967, didn't he? Yeah, we do. We see that. And we really see, I think what's uh, lovely about it is that he fell for her because of how feisty she was. Um, and we do see the uh, relationship based on mutual respect. You know, from the start, she was kind of the the strong woman behind mm. the man, if you will. Um, and yeah, very tough after he passed away. There's also narration provided by her daughter, Tina Treadwell, who had a hand in the musical, actually. Right. Yeah, um, so the, uh, uh, a young girl uh, plays the part of narrating, asking him other questions throughout. But yeah, Tina Treadwell um, had a part in the whole thing, actually. 
So, in, in, yeah. in terms of putting the musical together, mm. I, I'm, I mean, save the last dance for me. I can kind of work. Yeah. Out, I can half think about how that might fit into the, yeah. the the George and Faye story. What about Stand by Me? It sounds like oh. another thing. How does that fit into the overall story? So, um, Carly has a rendition of that that is spectacular, and then Benny King also does too. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the, the music is just fantastic. Everybody was kind of up dancing by the end. It was just such a joyous experience. Yeah, and you only have to dance for three minutes or in the case of Stand By Me two minutes and 56 seconds is all that you will have to uh, dance for for this song When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see And there we are, Stand By Me. Uh, One of the 20 songs, uh, Kellyanne Byrne telling Mm -hmm. me as we were listening there, that features in The Drifter's Girl, the musical that's coming to the Borgosh Energy Theatre in January of next year. Yes. Now, you saw it it in Newcastle. Just You've you've given us this idea of the actors each playing six parts. Mm -hmm. We're across three different time frames with, you know, one big lead singer Mm -hmm. in each of those. So I'm guessing that there's a very versatile set here and obviously a very versatile set. Yeah, too. yeah. I, I, the set was incredible. The set was by Anthony Ward, and it was it was simple but very effective. At times, it kind of looks like a music video, and um, it's just simple transitions from like New York uh, streets to studios to to London. And I have to say. The costumes by Faye Fullerton were outstanding and captured the periods from the 1950s to the 70s really, really well. And you were very excited when you were brought backstage afterwards. Some of the costumes caught your eye, <laughs> I believe, Kelly Ann Thankfully, I, you did not touch them. I almost, I was, I was tempted, the fur coat I was tempted to grab. But yeah, we were taken backstage in the Theatre Royale in uh, Newcastle mm. and um uh, there we saw the wigs, the props, but the costumes were absolutely beautiful. And I thought that they really, they got the different ages of the drifters very yeah. well. It wasn't, um, you weren't distracted in any way. It was completely believable. A lot through the use of wigs too, so. Yeah, yeah. So the, the costumes and all of that yeah. really, really create the very special. Mm-hmm. Do you need to be a drifters fan to, to go to this? Because I mean, I'm guessing that a lot of drifter songs that people will know the song, they mightn't even know as a drifter song. Yeah, you'll know the music automatically. I mean, if you are a fan, I think you'll absolutely love it. Mm. But I don't think you need to be necessarily um, necessarily a fan to go. What I think is going to be great about this when it comes to Borgosh is that Overall, it's a very uplifting experience and, you know, we're in the winter months. Everybody's feeling yeah. a little bit down. I think it's the perfect tonic for this time of year. And Faith Redwell's stories, well, it, it's one that maybe isn't that well known. It'll be yeah. good to, to, to see that story. Exactly. So it's a big recommendation from you, Kelly, yep. and I'm taking it. That's The Drifter's Girl, uh, which will play the Borgosh Energy Theatre from Tuesday the 30th of January through until Saturday the 3rd of February, borgoshenergy.ie to find out more details there. Um, I asked you earlier on who played the 
be the bell who had be the bell beauty in beauty and the beast in the live action version she was a former hogwarts pupil emma watson of course it was that played bell and sean o'connor from trim and county meath and uh, family members four of them all together will be heading off to the everyman in cork on saturday the 9th of december and they'll be having an overnight stay in the family room at the cork international hotel enjoy that sean and congratulations and that is our lot for this whatever day it is is it a wednesday evening I think it is a Wednesday evening. Indeed, Liam Murphy, Paula Shields research, Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator, Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.